Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Christina Millar, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Jennifer Gaddis about her new book, The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools, published in 2019 by the University of California Press. Jennifer Gaddis is an assistant professor of civil society and community studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She brings a feminist perspective to food politics through her research on the social, political, and economic organization of public school lunch programs. The Labor of Lunch is a work of activist scholarship that centers the perspectives of school lunch activists and frontline cafeteria workers who are fighting for food justice in communities across the United States. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Christina. So I wonder if you'd begin the interview by just saying a few words about yourself. Sure. Um, So I have been living in Wisconsin for about the last five years. And here I do a lot of work with community-based organizations, both through the courses that I teach and through a lot of the research projects that I take on. Um, My background is actually in environmental studies. I have a PhD from Yale. um, And I would say that even though my Um, PhDs in environmental studies, I was very heavily influenced by one of my committee members who is an environmental sociologist and another of my committee members um, who is a cultural anthropologist. So I feel like um, I tend to take a very interdisciplinary approach to my work. But here at Wisconsin, I have, um, I think, definitely kind of fallen in with a lot of the um, people in community environmental sociology and in the sociology department here who do um, more emancipatory social science and action-oriented work. So while I'm not a sociologist, um, I'm very happy to be kind of interacting with sociologists in my broader work. Yeah, that's great. And a lot of the book did incorporate a lot of sociology, which was uh, really a good uh, parallel to like the historical perspective. Um, So what led you to write this book and how did you start this project? So um, I really identify as my primary field of interest is critical food studies. But as I mentioned, I did my PhD in environmental studies. And at the time, I was very interested in the local food movement. So this is about 10 years ago that I started this research. And I, I knew that I really wanted to do something that would involve some sort of participatory action research in my local community. And so when I was trying to decide on a dissertation topic, I kind of looked broadly at what was going on in the local food movement. And there was a lot of focus at the time on the power and potential of community-supported agriculture. And there had been um, quite a bit of um, scholarship already being done on farmers' markets and you know, things that are, are kind of more about organic food and local food um, that individual consumers can purchase. And so when I started to hear about farm to school programs, which are basically this um, way in which um, public schools um, purchase food instead of from um, kind of major um, food distributors um, purchasing food either directly from local farmers or 
sort of saying to our distributor, hey, we want to give a geographic preference to purchase food from people who are um, growing food directly in our area. Um, that was really intriguing to me for two reasons. So one, um, it really had to do with scale. So this idea that um, right now the National School Lunch Program on any given day is feeding about 30 million kids across the country. So it's definitely something that allows us to move beyond this idea of individual consumption to think about how we can use public programs to really support transitions to more fair and sustainable um, food and agricultural systems. So I liked that idea of really thinking about this um, in terms of the, the scale of the system. And I liked that um, in looking at the National School Lunch Program, as opposed to some of these other um, places within the food system, this was a, a way to really think about systems of production and consumption, um, like simultaneously and to look at how they evolve over time. And I also really appreciated that within this program, about 75% of the kids who participate on any given day are from lower income families. So they qualify for free or reduced price lunches. So one of the things that the local and organic food movements have been sort of criticized for in the past is that they tend to cater toward more elite consumers. So to me, this was actually a really important counterexample where, you know, if we can actually start to make changes within this program, it's going to disproportionately benefit lower income kids and families. So those are some of the reasons why I was initially interested in this focus on um, school lunch programs. And then I think once I actually started doing the field work, um, I really got um, very, very interested in this question of labor across the food chain. Um, so a number of the lowest paid jobs in the country and some of the most precarious jobs are within the food system. So whether it's um, the work of actually growing food or um, you know, working in slaughterhouses or doing other processing work um, or working in food service environments, these are some of the lowest paid jobs. And um, I think it's really important to be focusing on how to actually improve the quality of those jobs. So as part of my fieldwork, one of the things that became really um, evident to me pretty quickly is that there's a very strong relationship between the quality of the jobs in school kitchens and cafeterias. So what sort of hours people have access to, what sort of job mobility there is and things of that nature, um, I think really um, are pretty directly related to what the quality of the food ends up looking like for the kids. So as I really progressed through this work, um, I would say I um, got more and more interested in this question of labor, um, in part because there was a lot of scholarship that really looked at, you know, um, things like plate waste. So why are kids throwing away food in cafeterias or, you know, a lot of scholarship on the nutritional standards? Um, but there wasn't a whole lot of attention given to this broader question of, why do we have so many foods in American public schools that are just reheated factory-made foods when um, a lot of people would be um, you know, much more in support of freshly made foods that are kind of more attractive and you know, less full of additives and things of that nature? So I got really curious about this question of you know, why do we do so little cooking um, in our schools and what does that have to do with um, both these questions of you know, how we value gendered forms of labor, like the work of feeding, um, and how do we um, how do we value kids, particularly kids who are coming from lower income families and communities of color? For sure, and that reminds me uh, of one of my favorite concepts you talk about in the book, which is community mothering, and we'll talk about that a little later. But first, um, could you also tell us about your methods and your experience doing this research, like your field work? Yes. 
So I used the extended case method. Um, so I really began with um, pretty intensive field work in um, New Haven Public Schools. Um, I did that for about three years. And I would spend time um, not only in the kitchens and cafeterias, but also in spaces of food production. So really trying to understand like how the food moved from um, you know, farms and factories to um, the school kitchens and cafeterias where it would be served. Um, and I spent a lot of time um, really just um, observing and interviewing workers um, in these spaces. And the longer I spent there, um, I think the more um, some of the frontline kitchen and cafeteria workers really became like kind of comfortable with my presence. And um, I, I would say that I probably expressed a little bit more interest in them and their lives and their work than they were used to, because um, a lot of times what would happen is other researchers from Yale would come in who were focused more on the nutrition and public health side of things. And um, if they would talk to the workers at all, it would be basically, can you help me set up things for this plate waste study that I'm doing? Or, um, you know, can you help orchestrate this form of research that I'm doing? But they wouldn't really ever ask about, you know, what the workers were observing or, you know, what their vision was for school food reform, which to me always felt really um, problematic because, you know, a lot of these um, workers really care so much about the kids that they're feeding and they're interacting with them on a day-to-day basis. So I think that they um, can offer a lot of really important insights. And so um, I would just ask a lot of questions about, you know, what things had been like in the past, um, you know, what they um, thought was good or bad in the present. And over time, um, some of the older workers who had um, been with the district for, um, you know, a couple decades would start to bring in um, photographs for me of things like, you know, we used to have a bakery here and now we no longer have a bakery. And, you know, they would show me like through this kind of visual record and sort of point me to people who have been um, with the district previously who had retired. And I think that that was one of the things that really um, helped me understand um, the um, kind of historical changes that I wanted to look into in greater depth later on. And at that same time, um, the workers in New Haven started to negotiate a new contract. Um, so this is through the union, um, Unite Here, there. And they decided that they wanted to do a survey project where worker leaders within the union would actually be um, going and collecting surveys from other workers who were kind of scattered across the district in individual school buildings so that they could really get a sense of, you know, what do we as a group of roughly 200 workers in the district want to see for the future of school food. So they were not only concerned about the quality of the food in the schools, but also one of the things that was a real challenge um, that we uncovered in the survey is that about two thirds of the workers were actually primary providers for their families, but many of them were really stuck in um, what industry calls short hour jobs. So these positions that are generally between three to five hours um, in the middle of the day. Um, So kind of that peak service time during um, lunchtime when you really need more people to help serve. So a lot of the workers really felt like, hey, um, if we could um, transition to more of a scratch cooking model instead of just reheating food that's been shipped to us from afar, that would be a way for us to not only be improving the quality of the food for the kids that we're feeding, but also to create um, not only longer hours for ourselves, but also more skilled positions. So through this survey project that um, I helped to um, organize and create a report for them to use for community organizing, I really, I think, was able to learn a lot more about 
um, the workers' vision for change. And I think that that was something that initially really got me um, to think much more critically about how um, all of this kind of activist um, movement within the the food space for this um, sort of uh, different paradigm of what school food could look like. So the school gardens and farm to school programs and other components of the kind of broader real food movement to me at that point in time seemed like they were still um, really missing out on this piece about how um, really we could think about improving job quality as well. So I really uh, think that the workers themselves in my field work um, in New Haven um, taught me a lot about why we have to think about real food and real jobs as um, these two things that we really need to be pursuing simultaneously. Um, so I mentioned that um, as part of the extended case method, um, I started with this um, initial ethnographic fieldwork. Um, from there, I really wanted to understand um, much more of the history of the school lunch program. So my work actually in the book extends um, the history of the National School Lunch Program, which a lot of people say you know, starts in 1946 with the passage of the National School Lunch Act. Um, my historical research, which included um, reviewing a collection of over 180 oral histories and significant archival research and content analysis of trade magazines, um, really brings us to the 1890s and the progressive era, which is when the first nonprofit school lunch program started in the U.S. And um, that component of the, the research to me was really important because I think with a lot of um, traditional um, histories of the National School Lunch Program, um, by starting it in 1946, um, what ends up happening is you blanket over a lot of really important local and state level um, work that happened largely within civil society to create these new programs. So to me, um, one of the important contributions of my book is that I'm really able to bring a feminist lens to this history and to show that uh, like at the time, so in the 1890s and early 1900s, um, there were a lot of women, um, both home economists and um, women um, kind of working together through women's clubs and parent teacher associations who were really interested in sort of reshaping and redefining how care is provided. So, um, you know, at the time, um, I think it was a, a real innovation to say that we actually want to move the work of feeding kids from um, the home environment to the public school environment. So my historical research um, not only allows me to kind of tell more of that feminist history, but also to um, really explain um, some of the like structural racism and classism that was embedded into the program um, when it was created at the federal level in the 1940s. Um, so mm -hmm. after um, kind of doing that historical research, um, I also really wanted to um, make sure that I was able to speak more to what the national context looks like today. So the kind of third extension within the extension case, sorry, within the extended case method is the extension over space. So I ended up doing field work in about two dozen districts across the U.S., um, none as in-depth as um, in New Haven, where I did multiple year, years of ethnographic work. But um, I did um, do field work, um, so both like participant observation and interviews in about two dozen districts, um, most of which were um, what I would consider to be leaders in this movement for real food in schools. So either they had um, really robust farm to school programs or had done a lot of work to phase out what people in the industry refer to as ingredients of concern. So things like high fructose corn syrup, artificial flavors, additives, um, and 
other um, kinds of chemicals like that that would be found in um, processed foods. Um, so I was really interested in places that um, were either currently undergoing or had undergone some sort of transition from um, really relying on this heat and serve model of food preparation to this model that was more focused on cooking from scratch. And um, from there, with the extended case method, the final extension is the extension um, of theory. And I think one of the things that is really quite different about my book um, versus other treatments of school food is the fact that I really am, um, I think, in a lot of ways, um, dealing with these larger questions of social reproduction and how care should be organized and, and the role of um, the state and public programs come more specifically in meeting the basic caring needs of the population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and going off of that historical um, overview you just give, can you tell us a bit about the current state of school lunch and cafeteria work in the United States? Yes. And I should have actually mentioned previously that um, with my research methods, um, one of the things that I um, and like very committed to is um, public scholarship and really making sure that I'm foregrounding the voices of um, people, both past and present, who've worked in this program. So one of the things that I did that I think was a little like less traditional in terms of research methods was um, I actually hired a videographer who came with me um, during um, kind of a final round of interviews to three different school districts. And we created a short um, series of five different videos that people can watch kind of alongside the um, book or use um, in conjunction with the curriculum guide that I created. And I think that um, to me, it was really important to make sure that we had some sort of way for people to um, really be seeing what these school food environments are like and hearing directly from the workers about what the current state of school lunch and cafeteria work is like in the United States. Because it's one thing for me to kind of tell people, you know, in written version in the book, but I think it's a totally different thing um, when you actually are watching a video and hearing directly from the workers themselves. But just as a, and are those sorry, are those videos available on your website? Yes. Um, so I have a little channel on YouTube, um, but if okay. you go to the website, um, yeah, you can access them from there. Awesome. Um, so in a nutshell, the current state of school lunch um, in the U.S. Um, so there's kind of two different things that you might find um, in my book. I focus specifically on the National School Lunch Program. So about 95 percent of public and nonprofit private schools participate in the National School Lunch Program, and, um, you know, the remainder do not. So what their school food programs look like are highly variable. Sometimes people might contract um, with, um, you know, pretty good meal providers. Other times it might be like there's not really any coordinated um, lunch program, but parents might get together and like buy some stuff from Costco (laughs) and bring it in. Um, I don't really deal with those kinds of lunch programs in my book. I'm really focused on of the National School Lunch Program in specific. And that program feeds about 30 million kids um, during um, the school year on any given day. And one thing that I think is really important um, to keep in mind, especially if we're thinking about this um, you know, through like any sort of class lens, is that about 75% of those kids um, qualify for free or reduced price meals. So in order to qualify for a free meal, your family has to be um, at 100 30% or below of the federal poverty line. And if you're between um, that threshold and 185% of the federal poverty line, then you would qualify for reduced price lunch, um, which is 40 cents. 
Um, and then anyone who um, is going to be above that 180%, sorry, 185% threshold um, would um, be what in what's called a paid category. And it gets a little complicated because individual school districts are allowed to set whatever price they want for that paid category. So on average, um, an elementary school meal is going to be about $2.40, somewhere around there. But there's actually quite a bit of variation um, across um, different school districts in terms of what those prices might be. So especially for families who are pretty close to that threshold school um, school lunches can actually be um, not so affordable. And I think that's one of several reasons why about 20 million children who are in K-12 schools who actually have access to this program, meaning like their schools participate in the National School Lunch Program, actually opt out of the program. So they choose to either bring lunches from home or they might choose to participate in um you know, purchasing food at school through the a la carte line, but not getting the federally reimbursable school lunch, like through the cafeteria line, like those kids who would be getting the free or reduced price lunches would be doing. So um, that to me um, is a little, like a little bit of a problem that, you know, from at this point, I'd say at least two generations, um, we have a lot of middle and upper middle class families who are opting out of this program. On the one hand, I think it really reduces the political will to make the program better for everyone. And on the other hand, um, it can really reinforce both class and race-based segregation in school cafeterias. Um, so if you just think about kind of the spatial makeup of what um, a school cafeteria looks like, when um, kids who are economically dependent on the subsidized school lunches um, have to go in one line in order to get the like more heavily regulated government funded school lunch and other people might say, okay, well um, I don't, you know, need this. Um, I don't, I don't need to do, to do this because um, I don't qualify for free or reduced price lunches. So I'm going to go get something from the a la carte line because maybe I like that food better or maybe the line is shorter or whatever it might be. Um, or maybe they just bring lunches from home and, you know, sit down and don't even have to wait in line. So when you are, you're actually spending time in school kitchens and cafeterias observing um, in some places, um, it can become very, very apparent um, pretty quickly um, which kids um, um, are coming from poorer families and which kids are not. So I think that um, that's a problem in terms of like if we really want our schools to be inclusive spaces, I think um, the current model, of the school lunch program really works against that. Um, and the other thing that I would say um, about that is um, one of the things that's kind of been in the news a lot lately is this issue of um, lunch shaming, which is um, basically um, when schools have unpaid meal debt. So um, this often happens um, with kids who are in that reduced price category or um, kids who would be getting um, the paid lunches, but who are kind of just above that threshold. So they're kind of like the near poor um, when they um, have an unpaid meal debt that exceeds a certain balance, um, a lot of schools will actually resort to um, what are called lunch shaming practices. So what this looks like um, can actually be quite variable. It could be something like um, stamping a kid's hand, or it could be um, throwing away their tray um, into the garbage and, you know, in front of everyone in the cafeteria, or it could be serving them like a cheese sandwich um, instead of like whatever the, the meal of the day might be um, on the serving line. And some schools also will actually um, take away privileges um, from kids related to 
going on field trips and participating in extracurricular activities like prom. So those are kind of like ways in which schools are trying to um, punish kids in a sense in order to get their parents or other caretakers to resolve these unpaid lunch debts. So I think that that's a real issue in school kitchen or sorry, in school cafeterias right now. But some of the public outrage, particularly on social media surrounding these practices, I think in the last year or so has really opened up some new political space for um, potentially moving away from this three tiered model of means tested income based eligibility for the program to instead um, having a universal free school meals program. Um, multiple of the current um, Democratic presidential candidates have incorporated this into either their education or um, food and agricultural platforms. And um, uh, I guess I think it's probably in October or November, um, Bernie Sanders and Alan Omar co-authored a bill that has been um, introduced to Congress that would actually provide universal free school breakfasts and lunches to all kids, regardless of their income. So I think that that's kind of the direction that I would like to see things go. Um, but I think that it's going to be a real challenge um, to get any sort of legislation like that passed when about 40% of eligible children are opting out of the program. So I think a big question is how do we actually get um, middle class and upper middle class parents to um, see that this program could be for them and their children and to invest in it accordingly? Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so shifting also a little bit towards the serving practices of school lunch, not just the consumption. Um, so can you describe a little bit about the activism that occurs related to school lunch and cafeteria workers in public schools? Sure. Um, so there are about 420,000 cafeteria workers in the U.S. And um, I would say a little over 90% of them are women. And one thing that's important to keep in mind is that um, even in some school districts that have um, pretty strong unions where their hourly wages might be um, quite a bit higher than other food service jobs in the area, one of the things that um, cafeteria workers really struggle with is getting access to enough hours to qualify for benefits. And so um, a lot of um, workers really are struggling in kitchens and cafeterias um, with earning poverty wages that don't allow them to care for their own families adequately because um, the hours that they can get access to in schools um, tend to be um, very much in this um, kind of three to five hour range that I was describing. So a lot of the workers that I interviewed for this project had um, second or even third jobs um, during the school year. And during the summer months, um, their employment situation was a little bit variable. And it tended to depend on whether or not um, they had school aged children at home um, that they needed to take care of. So um, for a lot of these workers, um, even if they really feel like you know, their job conditions should change, um, if they have to, to juggle um, multiple jobs um, and caretaking responsibilities, it makes it really difficult to do the time-consuming work of community organizing. Um, so one of the things that I think is a real challenge is that even in places um, where there is an existing union um, structure for people to be working together to try to improve um, job conditions, it can be really challenging for them to actually carve out time in their day-to-day -day life to do that work. Um, but I think that um, in terms of the types of activism that occur related to school lunch, um, honestly, um, I don't really feel like the broader movement, um, so either the real food movement or even just this movement to um, 
improve like public health um, through school food programs has um, in the past really viewed workers as allies. So one of the main things that I'm trying to do in the book is to show how if we take a worker-centered approach and really involve workers in improving what school food environments look like, um, I think that that has um, a, a really, um, I think it has a lot more power to like kind of fundamentally um, take advantage of what school food programs can offer, um, both in terms of job creation and in terms of really um, advancing food justice concerns. But I think historically, um, in a lot of ways, school cafeteria workers have been sort of um, pigeonholed as part of the problem, either in that like labor just costs a lot and this is a really cash-strapped public program, so we need to minimize the cost of labor. Um, or, you know, there's just been this real focus on ingredients. Like we need to improve like the quality of ingredients without a lot of, um, you know, thought or attention to um, like some of the labor and economic justice components of this. So um, I think that there are a few um, examples um, of ways in which um, workers have really used the power of contract negotiations to push forward changes. New Haven, I think, is a real example of that in my book. Um, I think sometimes workers um, will partner more with community activists um, as part of broader campaigns. Um, Milwaukee um, in Wisconsin, where I am now, I think is an example of that, where there was a lot of concern among local nonprofits and parents about the quality of the food in schools. And um, a number of the workers um, kind of joined this um, organizing campaign to really get a real commitment from the district about um, how they were going to move forward in terms of addressing community concerns. Um, and I think that there are some ways in which um, kind of broader um, like food activists are starting to think about um, not only um, like, you know, what things look like for the kids, but also um, how to improve um, both environmental and like economic and labor outcomes across the food chain using the power of public procurement. So for example, there's something called the Good Food Purchasing Policy, um, which first began um, in LA with the LA Food Policy Council and was adopted by LA LA Unified School District and has since um, been adopted by um, a number of other school districts around the country. And basically what it is, is it's like this framework. Um, if people are familiar with like lead building standards and how that is supposed to be this kind of flexible framework for building green buildings, the good food purchasing policy um, kind of operates in a similar way where there's five categories um, in which you can get points. So there's um, environmental impact, there's local economic development, nutrition, um, uh, animal welfare, and one other that I'm currently forgetting. <laughs> and in any case, um, school districts, um, when they sign on to the good food purchasing policy, it's really this commitment to um, really think holistically about how they can use public dollars to support a transition in the food system that's really going to benefit um, public health, workers, the environment, and um, local economies. So I think that um, that's the kind of activism that's taking a more holistic and kind of systems-based approach to thinking about um, not only like food justice and health equity for the kids, but also for, you know, thinking about, well, you know, food is food is linked to an economic system and people work within that system. So how do we start to actually um, think about, 
using our public programs to really support kind of these um, broader changes that we need to see happening within society and with the economy. Sure, sure. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, several concepts that relate to this broader concept of food justice. Can you define food justice? Sure. Um, So in the book, I I really borrow from Rashid Hislop. Um, His definition, um, I think, is really helpful. Um, And he describes food justice as the struggle against racism, exploitation and oppression that takes place within the food system. And really this struggle, you know, when we're thinking about what food justice can be, um, is addressing inequalities, root causes, both within and beyond the food chain. So I think that um, food justice in a lot of ways is meant to recognize that food is kind of a place where other systems of oppression play out, right? So like when we think about um, racism, when we think about classism, or when we think about like um, some of the effects of patriarchal capitalism, like we can see those things play out in our food system. So when we're working um, for food justice, we have to be working on dismantling those like broader systems of oppression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a good segue into my next question, um, which looks at gender and race and also care and care work. So how do care and care work factor in the practice of serving school lunch? So in the book, I borrow on um, Evelyn Acano glens um, t- typology of care work, and she talks about kind of these three um categories of care work. So direct caring, um, which is really the physical care of nourishing children's bodies, the emotional care of offering them reassurance, knowing their names, life situations, preferences, um, and any kinds of services that might be required to help them or their families meet their basic needs. So for instance, doing things like assisting with the paperwork for um, free launch applications and keeping track of students with allergies and special dietary needs are all kind of part of this like direct care that frontline kitchen and cafeteria workers might be doing. Um, Second is the maintenance of physical spaces um, where children are eating. So kind of um, doing the work of actually creating this environment in which care occurs. So that includes things like washing lunch trays, restocking napkins and utensils, um, keeping all the service areas clean, And then the third component is um, this work of fostering relationships and social connections. So this is oftentimes um, referred to as the work of community mothering. So this includes encouraging respectful and caring behavior toward other children and adults in the school food environment. It also um, might involve connecting students to the people who grow and produce their food with a lot of farm to school programs. Um, One of the things that they're trying to do is to sort of show kids that food comes from somewhere Um, from particular people and places. So helping to foster those kinds of social connections, I think, is part of this broader work. And for cafeteria workers who live in the communities that they serve um, and um, actually, you know, have worked for a number of years in the same school, um, community mothering might also involve making connections both intra and intergenerationally. So, for instance, um, some of the workers that I interviewed had been in the same school district um, or even the same school building for like two decades. So they might have seen, you know, siblings or cousins or even like, you know, parents and then their children um, come through the cafeteria line over time. So being able to know kind of who these kids are and how they're connected to um, each other or to, you know, the, the broader kind of population of like this kind of surrounding neighborhoods of a school, um, I think is something that um, is really important in terms of the type of care work that cafeteria workers um, are capable of doing. 
However, I think that one of the things that is really challenging is when schools are relying so heavily on heat and serve foods, um, as I was mentioning earlier, what that tends to do is it tends to reduce the work hours available for people because you just don't need people for as many hours when you have outsourced the work of cooking. So what one of the things that I found is that um, you know sometimes when um, there isn't a lot of cooking going on or if there's other pressures um, on the school district to reduce workers' hours, it can make it really challenging for them to engage in um, these different types of care work. And so one of the things that really came out in some of the interviews that I did with workers was how like how much they really struggled emotionally when they felt like they weren't able to care for the kids in the way that they would like to. So whether it it was, you know, feeling like the quality of the food that they were serving wasn't up to par or feeling like, oh my gosh, like we're so short staffed and like we really, you know, don't have the time to even like, you know, get to know kids um, or know their names. And that feels really terrible because like, that's something that like we usually, you know, would want to do. So I think that, um, there's all sorts of ways in which cafeteria workers are part of our broader care infrastructure, but when their jobs are economically devalued and when like they're sort of presented as, you know, just like a cost to minimize, I think that that makes it really difficult for um, us to really live out the caring potential of what these programs could look like. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And I really enjoyed um, chapter four on, uh, cafeteria workers and this whole concept of care. Um, so w- you mentioned this a little bit about how previously uh, cafeterias in school, um, they had things like bakeries um, and it wasn't so much heat and serve. So how does skill and um, uh, like the actual cooking process, like how is that uh, different and how is how does that like harm children um, in these public school systems? Well, I think that one of the things that um, people talk a lot about today is this issue of not always having culturally relevant foods in schools. And I think one thing that having um, more skilled workers can do is when you're cooking from scratch, um, you're much more able to actually take input from the kids that you're feeding. So one of the things that I saw in some places that I thought was really interesting was this idea of um, either youth or parent advisory councils, where you would have people um, who would really represent kind of the diverse spectrum of um, you know kids who are attending school in a given place, and they would be able to give input into what the menus look like. And What ends up happening is that when you don't have scratch cooking, that might be like, okay, um, we're going to, you know, taste test these different industrial foods next to each other and we'll choose like the ones that we think are the best. Um, But when you can actually do scratch cooking, um, one of the things that I think is really cool that I've seen is... um, youth um, or community members actually contributing recipes um, where they say, you know, these are things that we cook at home. And then the school district can say, all right, well, these are ways in which we can kind of tweak the recipe to where it meets like the nutritional standards that we have to abide by. And um, then they're able to actually serve those um, more kind of community source recipes in the schools. And I think one of the things that's really empowering about that is for people to be able to see like their own food cultures reflected um, on the lunch tray and shared with the broader school community. And a nice thing about when 
the workers are actually you know cooking the food in the same building, like in the, the kitchen, um, is that they can actually get more real time feedback from the kids and from teachers about you know how the food turns out, and they can be a lot more responsive in terms of tweaking recipes um, or kind of altering um, you know how they might be serving different components together. So I, I think that scratch cooking in a lot of ways um, creates the ability for um, kids to actually have a much better say in terms of what school food actually looks like. And I think that that's a, a really important um, thing for us to be thinking about if we want kids to feel like they're actually being respected, like in the cafeteria and like, you know, being treated with dignity. I think being able to have some level of individual and collective agency is really important. Yeah, when I think about how national school lunch programs are represented in the media, there's definitely not a lot of discussion, like in the popular media, about um, community source recipes. It's very much this language of industrial food and convenience. Um, so that's very different and a refreshing uh, perspective in thinking about how we can improve school lunch programs going forward. Uh, you mentioned that 95% of public schools are um, participating in this uh, national uh, public school lunch program. Uh, this other 5%, you mentioned the private, uh, they use private contracting services for school lunch. Ha- I-, I know that it's a, it's a hard comparison to make given the large scale of schools using the public school lunch program versus the private um, or alternative systems, but have these schools that are not using the public school lunch uh, program, have they been more successful in creating a better system? Is it worse if, uh, if they use private companies? Can you describe a little bit of the parallels um, and the differences, the pros and the cons of using alternative uh, lunch programs? Sure. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think that in large part, it really depends on how much local administrators and parents care about like the food. (laughs) I think if they, if they feel like the food is really important, um, sometimes they will contract with a company that can provide um, really high quality meals and can do a lot of things related to scratch cooking, um, using organic produce, things of that nature. Um, but I think even within this private, um, private sector space, um, you also find places where, you know, they don't really they don't really view cafeterias as classrooms. They don't really see the, um, you know, the importance of food. And in that case, I think you see um, those lunch programs um, sometimes even actually being worse than what we find in public schools because they don't have the same kinds of regulations that they have to follow in terms of the nutritional content of school meals. So I think it's it's actually pretty variable um, within the public sorry, within the um, the private school space. Um, I think we've got some really great examples and some really bad examples. But within public schools, I think that um, there um, are some issues in particular when um, more affluent public schools decide to opt out of the National School Lunch Program. And one of the things that I have seen is that there sometimes are these private um, management companies that schools can contract with that will say, hey, you know, if you if you have a certain um, like 
very low percentage of kids qualifying for free or reduced price meals. Like we don't think the national program makes sense for you. Like it's going to be way too much in terms of just burdensome regulations and paperwork. Like we could, could run a better program for you outside of the public system. Um, because you have to kind of keep in mind that if almost everyone within a school population is already paying for their lunches, like if they don't qualify for free or reduced price meals, they don't necessarily, um, you know, have a strong even realization of like, hey, my $2.50 is going into this federal program or, hey, it's going like, you know, just directly into like whatever the school meals program is at my school. So um, I would say that for a lot of those kids, it really doesn't make a difference um, when the schools would decide to opt out of the national program. But for the small number of kids at that school who actually are like economically dependent on the subsidy of the free or reduced price lunch, um, that's going to be a real problem for them in terms of just increasing like hunger and food insecurity. So I think that um, that can be a real issue in schools um, if they do decide to opt out of the program is um, how it's going to impact like um, whatever kind of smaller group of students, um, you know, really uh, were needing access to those free and reduced price lunches. Yeah. Um, in the beginning, you talked a little bit about this, um, but where do you see the national school lunch programs, specifically the the ones in public schools? So the, not the alternative school lunch programs, but the national program. How do you see that changing, if at all, going forward? And what do you think are some ways that the school lunch program should change? Well, I think that unfortunately, um, school lunch has become more heavily politicized, in particular, um, really. I think this began um, in the early 1980s with the Reagan administration um, as part of the kind of broader like cut to federal government programs. um, The Reagan administration slashed school lunch funding um, by about a third. And so this really decimated um, in a lot of ways the kind of quality of the food that was being served. And this led to a lot of white and middle class flight from the program. Um, And I think that, you know, from there, um, when I was growing up in the 90s, I think that, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of focus on improving school food. There were some concerns about like fat content, but there wasn't any kind of major um, policy response um, until the Obama administration um, with the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act of 2010. And I think in many ways, um, Michelle Obama, like really championed these school lunch reforms um, that a lot of people had been kind of working in a bipartisan way to um, pass as part of the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act um, for a number of years. And unfortunately, I think because um, there was a lot of backlash against the Obama administration, particularly surrounding like the Affordable Care Act and other things um, that felt um, maybe like these larger kind of public um, programs and government overreach to some people um, that uh, Michelle Obama and um, kind of the the Obama administration's um, relationship with school food was something that made some of the changes that happened in 2010, um, like much more polarizing than I think they otherwise would have been. And I think, unfortunately, one of the things that that has um, really like, um, kind of meant for today is that the Trump administration, um, as, uh, 
you know, in a lot of different kind of categories of our social life is looking at Obama era policies and rolling them back. The same thing is happening to school lunch standards. And I think um, had some of the most recent improvements to the National School Lunch Program, like nutritional profile, not happened under the Obama administration, I don't necessarily think we'd be seeing these same attacks from the Trump administration that we're seeing today. Um, So, um, you know, basically, this is like school lunch is like a very economically and culturally significant site um, for a lot of big food companies, um, both in terms of the amount of money that we spend already on school food. We spend about $14 billion of federal funding every year just on the lunch program alone. And this is like a time period um, when a lot of young people are forming taste preferences and like, you know, brand allegiance. So when we think about consumer culture, it's really um, in a lot of ways, like quite important for some of these big food companies to get their products, um, whether they be like branded or not in schools, because it's a way for them to create like a future kind of customer base. So, you know, when you start getting regulations like the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act that emphasize whole grains, fresh fruits and vegetables, things that really um, are kind of more in line with the scratch cooking framework. Um, these companies, you know, they see this as a threat to their business model. And so there's been a lot of lobbying and pushback from big food companies and um, processors through their um, you know, different lobbyists. And I think that the Trump administration has been much more responsive to some of those pressures. Um, even the Obama administration, though, did roll back some of their initial standards, um, I think, in large part because of this industry influence. So I think we're um, kind of at the space where we um, are seeing multiple things happen. So there is still this pressure, particularly from the processed food industry, to kind of keep the status quo in place. But then there's also, I think, with this new political space um, of people being really concerned about lunch shaming and seeing the value um, of universal free school meals, really advocating for that. And I think that we um, have a lot of organizations nationwide, like Food Corps and um, Urban School Food Alliance, that are really trying to say, we can actually work together and we can like bring school districts who are very large purchasers who control you know, multi-million dollar budgets together to act as a, an opposing force to say, hey, industry, like we don't like the kinds of products that you're selling and you need to kind of change your practices if you want us to continue purchasing um, from you or the foods that we're serving in schools. So I think that there's kind of a lot of um, space right now um, and a lot of excitement around um, not only farm to school programs, but also around um, kind of building these coalitions to try to push the food industry itself to take a more responsible tack. So I think there's a lot going on right now, but I would personally love it if the Universal School Meals Act, which is the piece of legislation that I mentioned um, that was introduced by Alan Omar um, into Congress, I think that um, you know if we were to pass that, it would go a long way in making some of the recommendations that I making the conclusion of my book um, a reality. And what I love so much about this legislation is that it not only um, provides universal school meals to all kids, but it increases the reimbursement rate for school lunches. So that means that for every single lunch that's served in schools, um, the federal government is um, giving more money to the schools. This means that they can afford to pay workers better wages 
um, and it means that they can afford to invest in transitions to scratch cooking, which enables them to, you know, once you can cook from scratch, you can source food very differently. You can actually purchase from farmers in your community. And as an economic development strategy, it makes, I think, a lot of difference for local communities. And I think it can be something that really contributes a lot to um, economic development in rural areas, especially. And the thing that um, I think really would help a lot with the Universal School Meals Act is that um, it includes a provision where if school districts source at least 30% of their ingredients from local farms, then they get an additional 30 cents reimbursement for every lunch that they serve. So that means that um, this legislation would really be offsetting the cost of um, purchasing local food, which might actually be more expensive. So I think that it would go a long way in actually um, giving schools the economic resources that they need to be able to use public school lunch programs to not only do things like um, you know, invest in purchasing from farmers and ranchers that use organic and regenerative practices that help to combat climate change, but also, you know, would be getting um, much fresher and healthier foods into schools that haven't um, had so many like different additives and other kind of processing aids um, used. So I think that um, that piece of legislation would make a really huge difference if we were able to actually pass that. Yeah, it sounds like this this uh, this idea of reforming the lunch system it has so many different moving parts that would benefit from this. So not only the, the children um, in getting a better quality food, um, but the workers with more hours, better pay, the community, depending on where it is, um, and improving you know, agriculture in the community, especially in, especially in rural areas. So it just seems like there's so many benefits to doing this. And I'm hopeful that we have some of these changes soon. Um, but my final question for you is, what are you working on next? Yeah, so I'm actually looking at um, what are called sustainability transitions in public school lunch programs in other countries. So I've gotten very interested in looking at other countries with national school lunch programs, particularly countries that have universal school lunch programs, because I view that as um, a part of like what a feminist food politics would look like. So this idea of collectivizing the work of feeding children to me, like very directly, it relates to, um, you know, thinking about um, how we actually start to make some of our public programs and institutions um, more egalitarian in nature. So I'm really interested in places that have these universal school lunch programs and places that are trying to use um the kind of economic power of their public school lunch programs to support um, different kinds of agricultural and food systems that are more focused on like organic food production and um, like kind of eco-friendly production in general. So I've done field work so far in um, Japan and China, and I'm going to South Korea this summer. And I think that um, South Korea is an example that I'm especially excited about because in 2011, they created something that they call their universal free eco-friendly school lunch program. And it was very much the result of grassroots organizing um, around this like real desire for food sovereignty and kind of a different perception of where risk was located within the food system. And it's been really exciting to see how um, the government in South Korea has really taken ownership of 
like responding to like citizen demands for a very different kind of school lunch program. And they've really done a lot to incentivize the creation of new supply chains and the conversion of different kinds of farms to more eco-friendly practices. Um, And what's been really, I think, cool to watch in their case is um, as this has been really successful in schools, the government has um, started to think about how they can actually expand this model to um, other public feeding programs. And in Korea, on any given day, about um, one out of five people is actually eating through a public food program. So when you start to think about scale and what it looks like to actually um, you know, change a broader system, I think that um, Korea is doing some interesting stuff to really use the power of public food to um, support a broader transition within their food and agricultural system. So I'm pretty excited about that. And then Japan is just really interesting in part because like the way that they organize school lunch there is the kids actually um, like they do chores and they feed each other. So they take turns um, serving each other and then um, like cleaning up after each other when like the lunch service is done. So their um, example is really interesting to me, um, not only because of some of the um, kind of food education things that they're doing, but also um, because in a lot of ways I see this as a way to teach kids that all people, regardless of gender, race, or class, like could um, and arguably should be engaged in the work of caring for each other. So I really like that um, Japan kind of offers this space to think very differently about how care is arranged. So that's kind of what I'm up to right now is doing some of this field work in other countries to really get more of a comparative look at how um, we could potentially be organizing our public school lunch programs here. That sounds like such a cool project. Uh, I'm really excited to eventually read that work um, when you when it comes out. Um, I love the like, comparative approach and seeing how a lot of these positive changes that we could have here in the United States um, look in practice in other countries. Um, well, Jen, we've taken up a lot of your time. So where can listeners find you online to learn more about your work and your book? Yeah, so I have a website. Um, it's jenniferelainegavis.com. Um, so people can go there. And um, I have um, the YouTube videos that I mentioned and a number of the articles, like I've, I've done some op-eds recently, um, for Guardian, Washington Post, Teen Vogue, and New York Times. And a lot of that kind of um, more public scholarship is available on my website as well. That's great. Can we find you on Twitter? Yes. Um, so my Twitter handle is Jennifer E. Gaddis. Awesome. So Jen, I want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed t- chatting with you. Thanks so much, Christine. I really appreciate it.